мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRP Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and today I'm just joined by Margaret Budik. Uh, Rusana is not available this week. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions every month to keep this podcast going. If you would like to support this podcast, if you enjoy it enough to kick in some cash, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org and hit the Patreon button and become a member of the Table of Ranks. So this week we have a very, I mean, I was just, I was re-listening to this interview, Margaret, and I was really struck with how fascinating it was with uh, Gulnaz Sharfutinova on her book, The Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity. Um, I, I have to say a lot of the things she said really confirm some of the things I've been thinking about for a while. So why don't we just jump into things and, and have you read uh, her bio and get yes, to the interview. definitely. Gulnaz Sharafuddinova is a professor of Russian politics at King's College London. Her research interests focus on Russian national and regional politics, political economy, and social psychology. She's the author of Political Consequences of Crony Capitalism Inside Russia and numerous articles. Her new book is the award-winning The Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Gulnaz Sharafuddinova. Well, you know, you have this book, Red Mirror, which I guess, what, came out two years ago now? Uh, October 2020, yes. Oh, okay, October 2020. So it's called Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity. And... The first thing I, I like to always ask people about titles because, you know, it is the, it a thought goes into it in some form or fashion. So I'm really curious about the metaphor of the mirror because the book has a lot of this kind of mirroring, reflection, uh, you know, otherness, etc. So what is this deal with the mirror in the title, and what does it mean for the book in general? Yes. Yeah, so um, the, it took some time to come up with a good title. Uh, I am very happy with, at the end with what came out. Uh, but the metaphor uh, was drawn from a fairy tale uh, by Hans Christian Andersen. And uh, to me, the mirror is a great metaphor to capture collective identity. And in Hans Christian Andersen, if you remember, there is a story of a shattered mirror, the splinters of which get into the eyes of uh, all people. And if you remember a little guy, uh, a little boy, Kai, who gets that splinter mirror in his eyes and he becomes sort of frozen and he's enchanted by the Snow Queen. So that splintered mirror, the shattered mirror, mirror captures the Soviet collective identity that was shattered but stayed in the hearts and minds of individuals who have gone through that experience. And now when they see themselves in that mirror, because they, those who have that splinters, those splinters 
of the shattered mirror, it resonates and they recognize themselves. So in a way, to me, it captures this revival of the Soviet collective identity in contemporary Russia and resonance that people have because of those splinters that they have kept inside in their hearts and minds or in their eyes. So a collective identity. Do you, do you I mean, you know, I, I've been thinking about this, this persistence of the, the red man, right? And we'll talk more about Homo Sovieticus and Sovok and all of this a bit later. But I'm cu- I'm really kind of curious about its persistence, you know, as, a, as a, a reflection to look at for identity as a referential point 30 years now. How do you explain this, you know, this continued resonance of the Soviet period as a as a point of collective identity? So the book, you know, I wrote it, in fact, in some ways in response to these thoughts that you're having, Sean, but many other people have as well about the continuing relevance of Soviet period and Soviet ideas and identity. And especially after 2014, many people started to talk again about Homo Severicus. And in my early attempts to think about this, uh, I was uh, I came up with this idea of cognitive path dependency, the extent to which, you know, ideas translate through time, etc. Uh, however, when we talk about the persistence of the Soviet man, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with um, uh, Masha Gessen's book. Yeah, I reviewed it. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> right. I am actually, my book is um, a reaction and in a way an opposition to that. Yes. Because <laughs> I tried to differentiate my thinking and, you know, I thought a lot about the persistence of a man and, uh, uh, and what it might mean and in various other articles. And I'm writing a book about Homo Sovieticus now. I've come to uh, to an understanding that um, the Homo Sovieticus idea is a bit too simplistic, and it um, it's based it's too politicized. It's very much based in the Cold War era thinking and um, in actually system systemic theories um, of looking at what a personality of how enduring uh, human personalities could be. I am of the point of view that, you know, humanity is very universal across time and place. And, you know, the uh, the good and bad is spread uh, across time space uh, quite similarly. But where the differences are originating is in how various leadership and media and institutions work to propagate or bring back certain uh, uh, things that uh, exist as a potential. So for me, uh, in the Russian society, uh, various Soviet ideas and these identity splinters, they existed as a potential, as a template. Uh, and there are many of those ideas, uh, only some of which are uh, being brought back by the contemporary regime, by the contemporary media and propaganda system. So. Uh, uh, the Soviet man as such is a concept which results from 
um, a very idealized vision in the Soviet period during the Cold War of the, you know, that there was an autonomous and liberal man in the United States and in other Western countries. And then there is a man who is conditioned by totalitarian system. And this conditioned man, the Orwellian double thinker, in a way, re, you know, gets um, uh, revived uh, in contemporary times. Uh, so that 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 binary vision into an autonomous man and this dependent, you know, slave, I think is too politicized, too simplistic, uh, and there are no such inherent qualities and such inherent individuals and selves. But uh, it, you know, as we see with populism and with political evolution in in, in the Western countries, we see uh, various traits that could be even linked to, you know, totalitarian men in in other countries as well, and double think, and you know, the 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 tolerance of cognitive dissonance, the belief in ideas. That you know, you know, who would vote for a millionaire, billionaire Trump, right? The, for the the poor. I mean, I, how does that work together? This billionaire who has been making his career actually uh, stands for the rights and for the benefits of the poor of those who lost. I mean, we that's those are some contradictory points that emerge, right? So, so therefore, um, I uh, you know, in in terms of my intellectual evolution of this project, I came at the point of pointing out the leadership and the social and cultural construction that is ongoing in any country. And in this construction, certain ideas were brought in and how Soviet elements became really resonant and important was as, and then we can talk about it, but this the, the, uh, from the Soviet identity, the ideas of Soviet exceptionalism became very important, but they became very important on the back of the trauma that uh, was, you know, the 1990s the, uh, was conceived of um, in a way. So the, the, this is a lot of stuff we're going to we're going to talk about today. But before we get to some of those things, I again, you know, like I, I like to ask about titles, I also like to ask about first lines. And the first line of your book in the preface is, quote, Vladimir Putin is not the president of my choice. However, he is a president by virtue of the choices made by people I care about. Why did you start like, like this? The, the key thing there was that um, the whole project was a very personal uh, initiative for me, a very personal project. And it was written to try to make sense of the growing gap that um, was developing, emerging, and it was very clear after 2014, the gap in perception. So what was happening in Russia, basically, you know, from the West, we saw uh, increasing authoritarianism and we saw this um, increasing aggression and, you know, things uh, with the Crimea annexation really sort of brought back the worst ideas and memories about the Soviet aggression against its neighbors and uh, during World War II with the Germans. Germany and Molotov-Ribbentrop Act and things like that. So the West was getting very concerned and anxious and fearful of Russia. And at the same time, within Russia, you saw optimism, euphoria, increasing popularity for the president who did it. And so that chasm, that 
gap, that difference in understanding was really becoming more and more enormous. And I am someone who is very closely associated with um, my family in Russia, extended family with friends. I mean, although I've lived uh, mostly in the United States and um, UK over the past, I mean, almost 30 years now, um, you know, I've kept my ties uh, and my love for uh, the, you know, for the roots uh, that I come from quite uh, strong and intense. And I also realized that, okay, if I lived in Russia, probably I might have been sharing all the emotions and ideas that um, people close to me go through. And so to me, you know, these are people I love, and yet they do not share my vision. They have their own vision. And I thought that I'm in a pretty good place to try to understand. I mean, uh, that was the rationalization. I really wanted to understand what was happening and why I think differently from people who I love, why they think differently. I couldn't just say they're brainwashed. I couldn't just say they're silly. I couldn't just say, you know, uh, I couldn't do any, you know, I couldn't just say they're homo Sovieticus. I am as homo Sovieticus as they are. I couldn't say that. I really tried to understand. I really wanted to try to understand what was happening. And social psychology was really helpful in, in attending to these questions. And, and so much so is that, um, you know, you go so far as to even ask the reader to have a certain level of sympathy and the attempt to under, to to go with you on that journey of trying to understand this growing chasm. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, the book, uh, the project aims at the Western audience. And I'm sort of pretty clear that while I think the West should try to understand because it's very easy to other Russia and Russians, it's very easy to you know, look at um, uh, these dispositional inherent uh, traits that other people might have that we on our side don't have. From social psychology, this is a very fundamental, so-called fundamental attribution error. When we explain ourselves and our group, we come from the perspective of what the context has done to us, for us to behave in a certain way. When we try to explain the other, another group that we don't know, that we're not part of, we say they are this or they are that. They are that historically. They have this, you know, national character. They have this culture, right? So it's fundamental psychological trait of how we live, and that's very normal. And, you know, those of us who are positioned sort of like bridges between two societies, and there are many, you know, many of us find ourselves in such... Um, complex identity situations, it's important to serve those bridges. And so I was trying to be sort of this bridge for the Western society to try to understand what's happening in Russia. Now, I also point out that I think um, for Russians, a different books have to be written because they both need to understand what's happening with them. And I'm pretty clear in terms of my political stance and in terms of understanding propaganda and the political manipulation that goes in and the elite role and the leadership role. But society and people who, who might for example, read the book, will also try to see the understanding, the empathetic eye. But the books that need to be written for the Russian society are those that 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 bring attention to the potential for collective action. Uh, I also referred to Munhausen, you know, you need to lift yourself by your straps, so to say. And, you know, the, mm, the survival of the 
person who uh, is drowning in water is his or her own uh, personal deal. So we cannot wait you know, for the West to uh, rescue Russia. Russians need to rescue Russia themselves. And from that perspective, a message uh, written to the Russian community, Russian citizens should be different. And my book from that perspective is written from um, seeking the attention of, of the Western audience. So you keep uh, bringing up Homo Savieticus, and I was wondering if you could help us understand more what what that means. What role does Homo Savieticus play in Russian social and political life and norms? So the concept of Homo Savieticus is the type of the basically the extent to which totalitarian system affected personality and a Soviet individual was in the development after World War II from around 50s, 60s, the the idea about how institutions, political institutions impact individuals and society was first very much discussed by uh, dissidents from uh, Soviet Union and also from Eastern Europe. You know, such writers as Czeslav Milish, for example, with his captive mind was probably the first Polish writer dissident who wrote and, you know, had very insightful observations about how, in his case, he was looking at writers in Poland communist Poland, how they undergo, you know, certain transformation of being attracted to communism, how they change their personality. So that was the very first attempt. And then various other dissidents and Alexander Zinoviev and Georgi Markov from Bulgaria, Zinoviev, philosopher from Soviet Union, they all wrote their observations based on their own experiences, how system changes behaviors, thinking, culture, individuals under totalitarianism, right? Now, the very scientific attempt at unpacking and even creating the concept of Soviet man, which is like in Latin Homo Sovieticus, was done by Yuri Levada. And at, at the end of the Soviet Union uh, from around 89, he had this, um, he had money and a, a big project. Under Perestroika, he was basically brought to uh, be part of this big institute that, uh, that was uh, enabled to undertake survey a large-scale surveys, and he uh, had uh, an idea. He basically compared. He, you know, the he had an ideal of the these autonomous men in in the United States, and he wanted to to study the key features of the Soviet man. And based on that, in '93, a book came out, "A Simple Soviet Man," and so Levada Center continued this questionnaire over time. And I think I write that about 2011 in The Economist, and there was an article, Homo Sovieticus is back or something like that, because the Levada Center scholars were noticing with some anxiety that those features that they have found at the end of the Soviet period were coming back, so to say. So that's, that's, that's pretty much the evolution of first this dissidence ideas that on the themselves felt and were very critical of what was happening, and then a sociological empirical attempt to create a concept and to uh, sort of bring empirical data to support it. But uh, as I started talking about earlier, I were basically, I criticized the concept um, uh, by looking at how theoretically it is quite outdated because 
It basically takes human personality as an after effect, as an outcome of the political system. It's like if you establish certain political institutions, the output from that is a specific type of a man. Right. And that's a very, how should I put it, very functionalist view and very instrumental view of a human of humanity. And it doesn't allow for human, you know, will and agency to work outside these institutions. It's like, you know, you have a system and there is an output of the system. And that view is also quite conservative because how would societies change if that's how, you know, if that's how it operates? It's very conservative and sort of this equilibrium base. And you don't know. Yeah, I want, I want to jump in here because I, I'm fascinated by this concept too for a variety of reasons. But one of the things is uh, I'm interested in its ideological use. And it to me, uh, and I got this from from reading Masha Gessen's book, the persistence of I mean, in in the Russian intellectual tradition, it's there, but you can find it in other places. Russians are not uh, exclusive in this, but the d- desire to find a domestic other to explain why society hasn't moved in the trajectory in which you want it to move. So, for example, right, you can look at the you know I, I recalled the the revolutionaries of the nineteenth century who saw the Russian peasant as that fetter on modernity. In the early Soviet period, it was the leftovers of bourgeois, mashanstva, whatever, right? There is this persistent you looking for, trying to identify this domestic other. And it seems particularly for Russian liberals today, homo sovieticus is that domestic other. I absolutely agree. And Russian intellectual thought has... I wouldn't use the word always, but uh, has been predominantly very elitist. And it was elitist in either way. When you talk about this Narodnicheste, the people's movement in the 19th century, it was very idealist. It was based on really looking at the um, at the peasants as this ideal, you know, uh, groups that are linked to the soil, that are the essence of the Russian, you know, culture and tradition and history, etc. It was very idealized. And the other extreme is that, you know, uh, the country is a country of slaves, right? And so the Homo Sovieticus is the non-idealized, the sort of hatred-filled or the otherness-filled prototype of that thinking. And as if there isn't a middle where you can see yourself as part of a country with a lot of potential, but also with a lot of difficulties, you know, as any community would have. So it's either idealized or to a certain extent hated and criticized. This critical approach has been quite predominant during the Soviet intellectual tradition. And that's why I mentioned when I talk about dissidents, right, that was very critical and was, of course, anti-communism was, um, you know, a part of that's where the ideology comes in, right? And, you know, these dissidents, for example, Zinoviev, who had to leave the Soviet Union, he had to criticize the system and he criticized how the system affects individuals and how it affects society. So ideologically, it made sense. But the aftermath of these ideas and of this thinking is othering, domestic othering of, you know, blaming uh, society or blaming the masses for what went wrong with the system. Intellectuals frequently work for the powers, 
that are, right? So they are frequently at the service of the regime. And uh, at the worst case scenario, they cannot really criticize the regime, but they can criticize the people. It becomes quite easy um, sort of way out uh, of finding various answers to the burning questions. And that's what happened after 2014, when Putin's popularity sort of shoot off enormously. You know, intellectuals, this critical oppositional to the regime intellectuals had to explain what is happening in Russia. And Homo Sovieticus turned up as a very useful, quickly available concept to explain what happened and with the uh, nature of the transformation. It was much harder to, you know, think through the various connections that, you know, say in social psychology, you know, various theories allowed to make with the construction and leadership and things that I've tried to do in, in, in my book. Those ideas took a lot of discovery and thinking and, and sort of working with them. But when you have an available idea and simple and resonant, it comes again, it's available, psychologically available. So it was used. I, I'm also also interested if you could comment on this is that the role of that concept of the Soviet man outside of Russia, because I see an interesting replication of this binary between the Russian people as fully politically conscious or the expectation of them as fully politically conscious and them as slaves, right? There's a kind of, when we look at, and I see this today, particularly around the war, where there's this obsession with, you know, um, how many Russians support, what is the percentage of support for the war? And then when there's a high percentage of support, it's like, well, they're all slaves. But the question embedded in the question is the assumption that they should have more political consciousness than, I don't know, anyone else I've ever heard of on the planet. <laughs> exactly. No, you're absolutely right. And I would second your opinion on this link, right? Um, uh, link of, uh, uh, of these pre-existing biases and perceptions and available ideas about what Russia is with its Soviet history, with these ideas of Homo Sovieticus that were quite widespread and available in the public opinion sphere, not only in Russia, but also outside Russia. And the desire today for finding you know, some grassroots anti-war mobilization and strength. The revolutionary because, subject is what I call it. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, because, I mean, it's it's also understandable, right? Um, uh, if there is one actor who can stop war besides Putin, and let's sort of bracket him out, he was he's the one that started it, and we, you know, there are a lot of irrational sort of dictatorial trends there, but it's the Russian people right, who are the key agent who, uh, you know, from the Western point of view, could stop the war if they, by millions, uh, come to the streets in protest, right? And because this didn't happen, there is a, a sense of um, not just resignation, but disappointment, very strong disappointment. Why? How could they? You know, where is their morality? Where is their ethic? How could they take this, right? This type of understanding. And then uh, what is the available answer to that? You know, slavery, Homo Sovieticus, those ideas come as very clear answer. And once again, it is because of this, as I mentioned, the fundamental attribution error, because when we don't know, if you don't live in that society, you don't quite understand the constraints and the contextual 
factors that play into behavioral and attitudinal tendencies, right? Into how people see things and what their you know actions are and what they're motivated by. So by through the media, we only know that there are you know masses of people who live there who are supposed to be you know uh, uh, protesting if they are moral, and it's very easy to say that if they're not protesting, then they are immoral. And why are they immoral? Maybe because of their totalitarian past, and maybe because you know they have slavery until the you know 1861 uh, or until 19th century. So those are easy answers, but it's much harder to actually accept that for for the West, Russia is this other, and and uh, you know only those who are open to maybe trying to understand about life in a very repressive society, life in a very sort of economically, materially constrained society, life in a society where politics and polit- you know, politicization was sort of clamped down for years and years. And so people were sort of cornered into their little corners of life where they could do something for themselves without you know, uh, seeing any agency in politics. Right. And expecting that agency now is uh, a bit too much. It's a bit far stretched. Uh, what, you know, from the perspective of social identity theory, from which I wrote this book, what I expect is that war is this existential threat uh, and in a way identity politics by different means that asks people not whether they support the war, but asks people whose side are you in? And many people do not have choices whose side they are in. Those who have the resources to leave and to be associated with a different side have done that or could do that, but those are the minority. Majority doesn't have a choice to make whose side they're on. That choice is in a way predetermined. And it is in those conditions without choice, they have to decide what they're going to do about the war that in most, in at least 92, 90% of situations, they did not choose and they would not have supported to start with. And then they have to choose, right? And if it's your children, the children of your neighbors, it's your brother or father who is fighting in the army, whose side are you on? You know, it's like a predetermined uh, predetermined response. Yeah. Well, we're we're all from in the United States. We're all familiar with the support the troops and the power that does in terms of this issue of the choice that you're making, right? Uh, or the choice that's that's thrust in front of you that you have to pick a side. I, I want to talk about the annexation of Crimea because you know one of the things in in my kind of understand your book helped me actually uh, answered a lot of the questions I have about this. Is for me the one of the primary questions of post Soviet Russia is what does it mean to be Russian? Because the Soviet past is tabooed in some respects, or you can mine it for certain things. You know, but what is it? What does it mean? Like, how far do you try to recover some sort of imperial pre-communist Russia traditions, whatever, whatever? And it seems that 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 question is being Crimea represents a, a culmination in many respects of that search for a Russian national identity. You know what? What did Crimea do? What did, what answers did it provide to this question of what does it mean to be be Russian after communism? Crimea was really really important as 
a moment of verifying to Russians that they could be strong. So, you know, with the Russian identity, of course, it's like a, by now 30 years search, right, for articulating and constructing a vision and meanings around what, you know, what, it, what, it, what is it associated with belonging to Russia? What does it mean to belong to Russia, to be part of that uh, community? And in the 1990s, there was a certain gap and silence and lack of words to capture it. Such anthropologists as Ushakin were very good in thinking through this symbolic shortage, right? And in the 2000s, Putin's regime did a lot to create um, a, a number of words, concepts, and symbols associated with what does it mean to belong to Russia. And I would say that two ideas were really important. One background understanding around which consolidation was made was about the Russia being weak and victimized in the 1990s, right? And Putin coming on uh, the back of this uh, 1990s to turn things around and to bring back strong Russia. And so this story of Putin being sort of a white knight who saved Russia from the time of troubles was there as a narrative from around 2007 at least. But what I'm trying to say is that 2014 Crimea was the point of proving that. And so the ideas were there, but the event itself was a linchpin that solidified and brought some sense of reality to the words and narratives that were there and that were very desired, right? Russians that lost the Soviet strength and greatness and exceptionalism, you know, had an internal sort of inherent in-depth you know, sense of loss and desire for that strength. And Crimea, I think, satisfied that desire. And that's why it was so potent and effective in both legitimizing the, uh, the Kremlin and Putin and in bringing some euphoria and hope and promise to the Russian society. So I wanted to ask about the trauma that Russia experienced in the 1990s. You say in your book that you look at trauma not as a result of an event, but as a social construction of how events are perceived. So how does perceived trauma function in the national identity of Russia and for Russians today? The issue of trauma is also uh, one of those terms and issues that is talked a lot about. And um, my thinking about trauma, again, you know, as, as a scientist, I read a lot of books and my thinking evolves in the reaction to certain books and understanding. For me, a very important book on trauma was uh, Alexander Atkins, The Warped Morning, about the Soviet trauma. And as I was reading that brilliant book, uh, I think one sort of new idea that that developed, that emerged in my mind was the lack of appreciation for what what was important for the Russian society in the 2000s, and that was the trauma of the 1990s, how the regime was able to omit, ignore, and forget about the Soviet trauma, but how it made 
uh, a lot out of the experience the Russian society underwent uh, in the 1990s. And of course, this was the time of transformation, economic and social, very painful one with people losing their livelihoods and unemployment and very high inflation and this symbolic shortage I mentioned, right? So it was a time of loss in on various aspects of life. It was also a time of openness, pluralism, dynamism, a market development, people making money, people People going abroad. So there were other aspects of life as well. But what the Kremlin did in the 2000s was it picked on everything that was negative in the 1990s. And it formed this picture of the 90s as a black hole of sorts in Russia's history as a time of trouble. And, you know, again, to legitimize the new leadership that came to save the country out of that time of trouble. And so the vision of trauma, of collective trauma, in my thinking, follows constructivist sociological theories about trauma. Because when we talk about individual trauma, right, uh, it happens in, uh, and psychologists, of course, go through how very painful traumatic experience affects individual brain in terms of compartmentalizing, forgetting, and then, you know, people work to recover certain senses and to somehow deal with the effects of trauma. On the collective scale, you do not have that single brain. Instead, you have public sphere, media, culture, those shared signs, symbols, songs, literature, news, whatnot, whatever mediates the understandings and perceptions of what was happened on the collective level to the members of the society. And that mediation has a very also political aspect, potentially. And in the system, which is authoritarian, where media is controlled, there are very you know, significant resources to sort of manipulate that mediation to silence certain voices and to highlight others. So the voices of the 90s being traumatic, being really bad for the Russian society were highlighted. The voices that would point out the goodness of the 1990s, the purpose behind the pain that Russia underwent in the 1990s were silenced. What was that purpose? It was the collapse of the Soviet Union and transformation and bringing new Russia, right, with, you know, towards democracy and market economy, towards, quote, unquote, the normal path of civilization. That purpose was omitted, ignored, and forgotten. Instead, you had this, in fact, an understanding of the senselessness of the 1990s that was propagated. And that's where the construction is very, very important. And we can, I think, quickly see it from comparing how the 90s are used or how they're perceived in different in different other post-communist countries, because obviously the time of transformation and economic and social pains was not unique to Russia at all. Yet the political role of the 1990s for the political transformation towards authoritarianism is very unique to Russia. Many other countries went through that pain, but they knew why they're going, they were going through that pain. They knew the ultimate objective of that transformation. And they supported that ultimate objective. We were thinking, for example, about the Baltic states, right? Also, the 90s were really hard there. But if you ask the, the Latvians, would they go through it again to 
obtain their, you know, new independence, European Association, European Union, they would probably, in many cases, would agree that that pain was worth going through. If you ask Russians, they are completely just negative about it. And that's very in a very big way due to that propaganda and due to that undifferentiated, you know, little discussed portrayal and frame of the 1990s as this big black hole that is entirely negative. Do you, do you think that the creation of the 1990s as a trauma sublimated or displaced the traumas of the 20th century in the Soviet system? Yeah. Because if you think about, you know, like in the in during perestroika, you did have this attempt at reckoning with, say, Stalinism, the, you know, the Soviet period in general, the revelation of various, you know, black spots of Soviet history. But it seems that one of the things the 90s did was by focusing on that period as a trauma, it aided, of course, the nostalgia of the Soviet period, but also sublimated the, the those you know, traumas that existed in, in that period as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. I would agree with you. And that's why I mentioned Alexander Atkins, because that's the book that brought uh, attention to the unresolved, again, um, pains and traumas of the Soviet period that need further engagement with and resolution in the Soviet, in the in the Russian uh, society and um that those traumas were forgotten and in a way put into the background of course many russians uh, are you know aware of uh, all the tragedies and gulag and stalinism and terror but um somehow that's on the background and what matters today is this um constructed trauma of the 1990s and um it's like there is only, you know, so much space in the collective imagination for what is important today. And, and therefore, people sort of privileged, uh, I think, in the, sp in, in the public space in Russia, the trauma of the 1990s has been very much privileged over the discussions of the traumas associated with the Soviet period. So I would agree with your interpretation on that and the importance of this sublimation of the Soviet tragedy through the focus and highlight on the 1990s. Do, do, do you, does the 1990s as trauma still have resonance? Because part of me thinks, okay, you do have a, this aging population in many respects, you know, the last Soviet generation, you have a new crop of young people who, who didn't live under the Soviet system or have no actual uh, political memory of it. And their experience, their formative experience is the, the mid 2000s, the, the boom years, the good years, economically speaking. So one of the things that has been going around in my head is that the question of does this idea of the 1990s as trauma have less resonance because of a generational shift? And it seems one of the questions that the Putin government needs to answer is, well, you know, what is the future of Russia rather than dwelling on the past? Like, what is this regime? How does it justify its continued legitimacy. So I see like a couple of questions there, Sean. Yeah, just could be asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with regards to the generational um, issue and uh, the 1990s, you know, for what, what are the perceptions that the youth have about the 1990s and how they develop those perceptions when they haven't lived there and how resonant are those? And um, I think one uh, sort of term that can capture the importance of the 90s for the youth is that the 1990s have been mythologized. And, you know, it's like this myth 
that is quite a publicly important myth that uh, in a way um, that is digested in the society by young people as well. And it is for that reason I use, I refer to that song by Manetochka, you know, this teenager from Yekaterinburg, who, uh, who one of whose albums, uh, one of the songs in her album for 2018 was a song about the 1990s. And it is her a bit maybe ironic interpretation of the myth of the 1990s that shows how the youth might be perceiving the essence of the 1990s. But the in, the political importance, I think the war, the very current contemporary experience of, you know, that, that has shifted after the war of what Russia is undergoing right now is certainly will, um, in a way, take away the resonance of the 1990s from the, you know, political instrument, you know, uh, toolkit of, of the Kremlin. I think it is the war with its new set of economic, social, psychological issues and troubles that are ongoing right now and that are ahead of Russia that will, in a way, undermine the potency of the frame about the trauma of the 1990s, because this is the traumatic period now. It will be used in the future somehow, but that's what is undermining the strength of the ideological toolkit that Kremlin has relied over the past, you know, by now, not quite 20 years, but definitely 10 years. In this search for a, a national identity, Russian national identity or the construction of one, there's there's two kind of pillars of it. One is this idea of Soviet exceptionalism. And then the other is consolidation of the nation via an external enemy. Now, it's interesting because if you look at going back to this issue of trauma and, and scholarship on the issue of trauma, the idea of consolidating the nation, because the way I see trauma is it's it's a process of social fragmentation, this collective trauma. And so you do have to reconsolidate the nation under some kind of general concept. And it, nothing does this better, I think, than external enemies, <laughs> because it forces you to pick that side. It forces you to have social solidarity, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about the role of these, the Soviet exceptionalism which is a new idea for me. I mean, I'm familiar with some of it, but the way you use it is new to me. And the external enemy, how do they function? Politicians, right, face, especially politicians who are leading nations that come out, out after a certain breakup, transformation, traumatic experience, and that's what happened with Russia. They face with the need of creating a community around some shared ideas, right? And I, I use two very important concepts of chosen glory and chosen trauma. This is from Vamik Volkan, right, who is a, a psychotherapist who has developed uh, these ideas as two things that play a very effective role in creating such communities, that you can create a community around a shared sense of loss, right? So uh, something that is associated with the, you know, pains and struggles and formative struggles that a community undergoes through. But the sense of loss and struggle and pain is not sufficient because you need to exert hope 
And you need to exert, you know, some faith and optimism and strength also into that consolidation, right? So chosen glory and chosen trauma. Glory is the point in history, potentially, or recent history or very ancient history around which you can build the hope that we can do it, that our community, you know, uh, is strong, can be strong, can be revived, can come out from the ashes. In fact, Putin used it, the phoenix that's rising out of the ashes, right? So this optimism, hope, and strength is very important pillars, but going through a painful experience is also an important pillar. So Putin and the Kremlin have found very potent uh, historical points to capture these two ideas. One is World War II, the chosen glory for Russia, and one is the 1990s, the chosen trauma for contemporary Russian that resonated a lot because of many people undergoing through painful experiences. Now, national exceptionalism for the Soviet period, right? And this is, you know, as someone who has, uh, you know, who got her education in the Soviet school, I can share even my personal sort of understandings, right? The, the, the faith in the Soviet state as exceptional state, exceptionally good, a state that tries to well from in the in the in the 70s and 80s this was like this struggle for peace was this big narrative right but you know with this future communism with this help to the brotherly nations etc the propaganda during the soviet period was also extremely strong and powerful and it of course affected kids starting from their kindergartens and through school and there was no access to you know much alternative information in most of the soviet territory. Of course, we're not talking about some, you know, chosen dissident intellectual circles where, you know, there was a struggle over alternative information. But for, you know, the 99, 95% of the Soviets, that's the information they have that was provided to them by the Soviet government and Soviet institutions. And these information brought people up, brought Soviet citizens uh, around the ideas of how good the Soviet nation and Soviet ideas and Soviet sort of aspirations are. And so this faith and shared understanding around belonging to the state that pursues some good, morally justifiable, progressive, forward-looking ideas was pretty much taken for granted, with the exception of critically oriented individuals who were there, but whose ideas were not really distributed and broadcasted, right? You had to really make an effort to find them. So for the quote-unquote ordinary Soviets, the Soviet greatness was taken for granted. It was captured through various anecdotes and, and, and songs and, you know, these ideas about the Soviet ballet and Soviet army and the Red Army that won, you know, the Nazism and liberated. And, you know, so there were a lot of tropes and memes and, and songs and cultural artifacts to support the, this, this idea that Soviet exceptionalism was pretty much taken for granted. You know, it doesn't mean that in their daily life, people walked around thinking how great Soviets are. In fact, they were very critical. And in fact, they were always unhappy. But there were a lot of problems, obviously, right? But the taken for granted ideas became salient at the moments when Soviets interacted or faced the other, 
whether it's the Western other, whether it's the, I don't know, uh, African, Chinese, Latin American, it is at those point of interaction or facing the communities and countries outside the Soviet Union, those ideas about assumed, presumed perceptions of greatness were important for, you know, defining how the Soviet citizens saw themselves. So, and that was lost with the anti-communism, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that was shattered, right? That greatness idea was shattered because ideology changed, because the end of the Soviet system, the end of the Soviet state uh, reflected the collapse of those ideas, right? And yet, as I mentioned, you know, as, as I talked about the, the splinters of those ideas, right? The splinters of that mirror, the desire to believe in that is, you know, still widespread. And that's what is being used uh, in contemporary politics in Russia. That leads perfectly into my next question about public opinion in Russia, specifically towards Putin, which very obviously continues to be an enigma to the West. We don't understand it. How do people really feel about Putin? And in the book, you used a lot of pop culture influences, references like Magnetochka, Pilevin, Mikhalkov, and you, you kind of wove those references into the discussion of media power players like talk show hosts, for example. And you kind of seem to juxtapose them with one another. So how do you describe public perception of Putin? Where do those references come in? And how did you parse it out? <laughs> I know those are three questions, but kind of mashing it into one. So let me start by saying that I think the political system, the regime, along with its propaganda system, the media system, has been very effective in making culture serve political ends. And it has been very conscious about using cultural figures and, you know, for, you know, sort of mass culture, pop culture in support of the regime and the system. It doesn't mean that whole of pop culture is pro-regime. You have very important cultural, you know, you know, singers and writers who are in opposition, who find themselves in opposition. And yet the mass culture I would say, is associated to a greater extent with the pro-regime or sort of regime neutral, sort of non-politicized stance in Russia. So, so that's about culture. Today, we see a big cleavage uh, among those who have chosen sides for regime for Russia. You know, people like Mashkov, I mean, this is the actor, people like Kirkorov who, who find themselves on uh, the Russian state side. And those people like Yuri Dudz or Slipakov or, you know, those who take a more oppositional stance. So I guess the short answer would be that to a great extent, we do not see a big divergence between the cultural sphere and the political sphere and that the political institutions and actors have been quite effective in using the cultural sphere to its own end, either to depoliticize because the entertainment was sort of fed to the public as this you know, as long as society has bread and circus, right? So the circus part of it, or sometimes very consciously using specific or funding 
cultural activity that would be very specifically pro-regime supporting Putin, all those songs that have been written and went through YouTube, you know, that uh, conveyed Putin as this very attractive, you know, sexy man who everyone wants to marry or sees in their dreams, etc. for among Russian women. So, I mean, you know, there were a lot of uh, resources invested into, into creating and distributing those songs and those projects. And so, so there was a very conscious and smart, uh, I would say, approach from the political technologies in, in regards to culture. Now, the element of talk shows is also, right, this is probably the media and political communication sphere where I think the Russian uh, media technologies, political technologies have learned a lot from the West. And in the book, I refer to outrage politics and outrage media, the, you know, the phenomenon that certainly not wasn't created by the Russian media technologies, but was sort of taken up into their toolkit as uh, instruments that are effective in controlling, manipulating, shaping public opinion sphere. We're, we're entering the, the third month of uh, Putin's war in Ukraine. And going back to this idea of say, the annexation of Crimea, consolidating the nation. I, I'm curious about the, the ethnic components of this consolidation, because since 2014, there's been increasing rhetoric from Putin and his government, a, a more ethno-nationalist rhetoric. But speaking about the Russian world, that rhetoric is certainly part of this and this idea of, of you know, liberating the Donbass. Do you see a, an ethno-nationalist component that is becoming more prevalent as part of this culmination of identifying the Russian Russian national identity? So it's a, it's, it's a very interesting question because there is a contradiction in here. On the one hand, uh, what you're suggesting, Sean, with regards to this idea of the Russian world and, you know, helping Donbass does have the Russian ethnic group in mind that is central to this whole project. But if you look on the ground in Russia, you have very much, say, ethnic minorities uh, uh, having a bigger share in the uh, in the Russian army, fighting for the Russian mir, and you have other ethnic minorities, you know, and in various ethnic republics, sometimes even higher support for Putin and higher support for 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 the country and for uh, you know, it's very hard for me to say for the war, you know, in ethnic minorities, which obviously brings into attention the fact that it's not perceived as ethno-Russian or ethno-national project by the Russians who are very multinational, multi-religious, and you have Muslims in Tatarstan, in Bashkortostan, who you know, uh, are not different in their opinion with regards to this war and who very much see themselves as part of this side versus the other side, right? And they do not differentiate between Bashkorts, you know, Dagestanis, Tatars, and, and the Russians. And on the wider scale, I think the Kremlin tried to sit on two chairs on this issue because on the one hand, you know, with this Russian mere ideas, the uh, ethno-national aspect obviously was important. And the Orthodox aspect is also very important. And therefore, we have the role of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is really strong in supporting uh, Putin and, and war. But on the other hand, the Kremlin has been always 
systematically very careful in not taking any ethno-national rhetoric and always underlying the commitment of the government to the multinational Russia, to the multi-confessional Russia. And from that perspective, I would say the first part of it, the ethno-national part of it, was really just in a way hijacking or responding to the political demand that was that became quite clear around 2010 2011 when the issue of russian nationalism uh, and russian marches turned up to be quite important on the russian public sphere so the russian nationalists were in a way marginalized and uh, sort of sidelined from the russian public sphere but the government had to respond to that demand and in a way give some fodder to the people associated with, with, with these ideas. But the larger rhetoric of multinational, multi-confessional Russia is still strong. And I would say that it is foundational to the uh, Russian strategy today, to the governmental strategy today. Yeah, that, that's interesting you say that because I, I've also, in my view, have seen them trying to walk this line of trying to, you know, basically to the point where they're actually arresting and jailing like the far right nationalists, Russian nationalists, um, but at the same time giving some lip service to it. But since the outbreak of the war, there there has, at least from observers, even within and outside of Russia, they're actually pointing to a, a shift, a shift in, in Putin towards a more ethno-nationalist perspective. So I'm a bit find it interesting that you see them still walk, trying to walk this fine line. Yeah, I think on the uh, state propaganda level, you know, he has to be careful because Russia is, in fact, in reality, multinational. And um, he might be taking for granted some of these, um, you know, earlier uh, sort of uh, consensual things about the multinational um, nature of the state. Uh, but so far, uh, I do not see any strong, and this might be linked to the authoritarian, you know, repressiveness, um, but we don't see any signs of ethnic minority mobilization against the Kremlin, and we do not see any signs of ethnic minorities being threatened. It might be just a degree of uh, political control that the Kremlin exercises. It has been able to erect. and But uh, to the extent that we see things have coming out from Russia, I don't know, even in social media, I do not see any signs of ethnic minorities being threatened, despite various acts of, you know, against the ethnic minority languages and this trend towards more homogenous Russia that we have seen over the past years. But there isn't a reaction and there seems to be a certain degree of consensus that this multinational character of the state is not being undermined. But it could be, you know, I might be right now underlying just the degree to which authoritarian stability takes away any signs that that might exist on the ground as well. Well, this kind of goes hand in hand with what Sean was asking, but Fascist is more and more often becoming a way to describe Putin's government. And I want to hear how you understand it. How do you see that? Well, I first shared the thing that I think, you know, fascism is an extremely heavily loaded term. And it's extremely heavily loaded also for me personally as someone with who grew up in the Soviet Union and in Russia and who still carries a Russian passport. And 
to me, it will be very hard to, to refer to Russia as fascist just from this very personal perspective. At the same time, of course, the response to this question would depend on how you define fascism. The extent to which hypernationalism and certain degree of irrationalism defines fascism, I think we do see these features at play in Russia today. It's turning quite nationalist in terms of state nationalism, not an ethno-national type, but state-oriented etatism, I would say. Nationalist is there. And again, the logic of war makes it that way. And a certain degree of irrationality, and I employ social psychology in my analysis, we also observe the irrationality both in the decision-making of the leadership, but also in the cognitive dissonances and how they are digested in the society. So some of these features we do see. What I don't see that at least allows me to not quite uh, you know, refer to Russia as fascist is a very strong degree of passionate mobilization behind the leader. I mean, the reaction of the Russian society to the war, you know, over the last three months has been more exposing anxieties, fears, aggression, but not an aggression that is expressed in in the parades, aggression oriented towards Ukrainian, but aggression oriented towards personal interlocutors of individuals who are trying to undermine your sense of morality who are trying to ask why are you not doing anything and things like that that's when aggression comes out but it's really an expression of vulnerabilities anxieties and fears that the russian society has to cope with today and those heavily depressed and heavily negative associations do not quite stand in comparison to the early mobilizational aspect of fascism where People were, you know, Hitler Jugend with, you know, parades and with certain degree of optimism and hope and certain degree of aggression that is displayed in unifying around the leader. These uh, features we do not see. Therefore, you know, I guess um, I would be careful with using this term only because of the very heavy implications and very heavy weight associated with, with the term fascism today. You know, it's interesting in terms of the mobilizational aspect, there was more public mobilization in the early 2000s after 2004 or 5 than it's until 2011, really. And now it seems, and, and some around Crimea, but you don't have, you know, I remember not only do you, did you have the youth organization Nashi, but you had this popular front thing that was supposed to be a kind of populist mobilization aspect it seems that now the the government is really focused on demobilization and actually not – it's a bit surprising to me they're not trying to harness the public as much as I would imagine they would uh, now during the war. I think partially because the war went against the expectations both uh, among the elite but also among the public and when – such disappointment, you know, when people have to face with such disappointment, we see in a way a retreat turning away actually from what is happening on all grounds and on all levels. And we might be seeing this uh, demobilization and retreat because of that disappointment and uh, because of really miscalculation. And that's where the irrationality of, of the whole thing comes out. That was Gulna Sharafuddinova. Gulnash Arfudinova is a professor of Russian politics at King's College London. 
Her research interests focus on Russian national and regional politics, political economy, and social psychology. She's the author of Political Consequences of Crony Capitalism Inside Russia and numerous articles. Her new book is the award-winning The Red Mirror, Putin's Leadership and Russia's Insecure Identity, published by Oxford University Press. All right. Well, thank you very much, Margaret. Um, I don't know about you. I, I, I feel like there's so much we could talk about uh, and for this interview. There's so many issues, but unfortunately, we have to keep it toned down a bit because... You know, uh, this is this interview is over an hour long already. So, it, and it's 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 a pretty heavy heavy. You know, those of you who just finished listening to it know it's a pretty heavy lifting. There's a lot of heavy lifting in this interview. Um, yeah, there was a lot said. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, why don't we start? And why don't you give some of the your thoughts, and we can go from there. Yeah. So, I was particularly intrigued by the conversation about. Um, the limitations of how the West perceives Russia and Russian people's decision-making and how they seem to be bound by these two ideas, on one hand, slavery, on the other hand, Homo Sovieticus. And both of them, like the overarching theme of both of them is belonging to the state, that people are kind of projections of state conditions and they're almost possessed by their country. And I feel like these specific tropes reflect the criticism that we're seeing today against the Russian people, how it's kind of dehumanizing and and places this unreasonable agency, boils people down to this product of their history rather than making decisions between limited choices. Because I'm seeing the West continuously getting frustrated by what seems to be a lack of activism uh, by the Russians, especially with what's going on today, but by this own binary metric. Yeah, which is, has a long history, too. And, and, and as she points out, and I pointed out in an interview, too, is also part of a Russian intellectual tradition, right? This isn't just something that's taken from, from the West, this binary between, you know, what she calls the idealized versus the othering, right? The domestic othering of why, why are we not, you know, us Russians live in a normal country? Oh, that's because of the slavish attitude of the Russian people. If they were more, you know, engaged politically, then things would be different, right? So basically the blame is being put on the people for not rising up against their, you know, history of authoritarian leaders. Um, and so th this discourse, you know, you can find this discourse in the 19th century as well. Um, and it also comes from the West too. And I mentioned this in an interview, right? This, this constant quest for the Russian revolutionary subject? What is the thing that's going to, A, overthrow, in this case, Putin before it was communism, et cetera, and bring in Russia's bright future, right? There's a, there's a desire, I think, uh, and a justifiable desire. I mean, I, I hope those things too. Um, however, I think that this there's a desire and... That along with that desire, there's also a tendency of disappointment. So there's this like irresponsibility of the state subject by not being an activist almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a moral, there's also a moral judgment as well. Right. Um, yeah, I have a lot of, I have a, I, I've been thinking about these things a lot. Um, and I, I find this an interesting aspect. But you also, you also noted too, like when it comes to the war, this, when you're, you know, you mentioned, this and I'd like to have you comment more on this is, you know, the the situation that say a Russian person in Russia might find themselves in is basically a series of bad choices, 
or are bad options to choose from, <laughs> right? Because the question, as Gulnaz mentioned, the question is not if you support the war, but whose side are you on? Exactly. So with that being the dynamic, it's like there's not any room for a pro-Russian anti-war stance here. And therefore, no room, by the way, for, for pro-Russian liberal activism. That's just not an option here. Yeah, it, or it's a very, very, it's a very narrow, very small room. I mean, there is an article today in the New York Times that talks about, like, Russians who are against the war, many of them, of course, who have left Russia, right? That's the other thing that Gulnaz says is that on whose side you're on, well, if you have the means, you can actually just extricate yourself from this whole situation um, as best you can. I mean, you can't totally. But um, essentially, this New York Times article talking about anti-war uh, sentiment among Russians was one person they interviewed basically says, well, my, I'm basically silenced. Like there's no space. Um, yeah. So I think this thinking about it in terms of, I mean, as you put it, like it's not about pro or anti-war it's whose side you're on, I think is a different calculation or different question. Um, so, uh, in terms of what I thought was really fascinating is this whole, and of course, again, people who've been listening to this podcast for a, for a long time will know that I have a particular interest in issues of trauma, uh, particularly on the societal level. And I found her analysis of the trauma of the 1990s really illuminating and thinking about it as a constructed trauma. And it, it was a reminder that most traumatic memory, like social memory or collective memory, is indeed constructed. And it really made me realize that the foundational myths of Putinism is A, the, um, what, what she calls the chosen trauma of the 1990s as a time of troubles. So basically eliminating, as she rightly put it, the 1990s is a very complicated period of both, period of both euphoria and despair. Uh, the euphoric aspects have been completely silenced for the most part. So there's this, you know, chosen trauma of the 1990 at 1990s as a time of troubles. And then there's the chosen glory of World War II. And what's really fascinating here is what's missing, which I thought would be the, I thought was the found, one of the foundational myths, is the collapse of the Soviet system. That's not the trauma. The trauma is the, is the aftermath. I mean, there's, of course, Putin's famous uh, line that it's the, the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest political catastrophe of all time or something. Sure. Yeah, the 20th century. Yeah, that, and that's all well and good. I'm not saying that the Soviet collapse is completely absent. However, I think it's the focus on the experience of the decade of the 1990s, the transition is what's the trauma, not necessarily the event or the loss of the system. Wow, that's so interesting. And, you know, that kind of bleeds into some other ideas of, you know, Russia historically has never handled uh, political transitions very well. No. <laughs> and, and it's had these, it has, and I, and I was actually thinking of a really interesting, a really interesting book could be written on, Russia's periods of time of troubles, right? You have the 17th century, of course, after Ivan Grozny. Um, you have 
you know, and you could date this in a variety of different ways, but um, the the World War One Revolution Civil War nineteen twenties is a period of one of these of a of time of troubles, um, and then the nineteen nineties as a time of troubles, and I I, I think it would be really interesting to see how this issue of time of trouble is reflected culturally, politically, memory, if you can get at that, um, tr social trauma. Uh, I would be, I would, this would be very interesting to me um, if somebody took it up. I'm not going to be the one. Somebody else should. <laughs> it's a fascinating question. Yeah. And, and one other thing that she helped me think about that I didn't think about before um, is the role of Homo Sovieticus, going back to this things, this idea of the Soviet person, and how it is under a constant construction. So I think when I've talked about, you know, Soviet person, the Soviet person before, as an as a affect of the Soviet system, I tended to think about it in kind of static terms that the Soviet person of today is this kind of the same Soviet person of, I don't know, the 70s or something. And what Goldnaz, I think, rightly says, and again, I hadn't really thought of this before, is that, no, 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 the Soviet person, the post-Soviet Soviet person is a construction out of a, you know, what do you emphasize as the lingering memory, nostalgia, however you want to put it, of the Soviet system. And I thought that was a very interesting way to look at it. Absolutely. Almost like all constitutions are living constitutions in terms of how we look at our own identity and role in that. Abs ab exactly. Absolutely. Especially if you think about it, in, and this is why I bring it up alongside this idea of the, you know, socially, the chosen trauma and the chosen glory, is in both of those, trauma and glory, the trauma of the 1990s, the glory of World War II, and those, the pieces that you pick to, you know, to create that trauma or to create that glory are pieces that are part of the construction of this post-Soviet Soviet person, which, which is, I, I don't know, I think I, I would, I would love to hear more about this, um, you know, and I'll be certainly paying attention to any kind of discussion of this, this notion and also a, a seemingly a commentary on, on present conditions. Uh, oh, that, exactly. That's exactly it, too. Um, and it goes to this question of what is the, you know, and this is another issue I brought up, too, in the interview, is like, what, well, what is the post, what, is, what does it mean to be Russian today? And what Gulnaz, this, uh, another thing that, that got me thinking about Russia in a, in a new light is, is Gulnaz's point that a lot of the youth in Russia today didn't experience the Soviet Union at all. This is a new Russia. Our conception of this old Russia, Homo Sovieticus, is not the youth in Russia today anymore. Yeah, but there's still lingering. I mean, her metaphor that she starts out with the beginning of, of this shattered mirror that puts glass in your eye <laughs> was a really powerful image, but that's exactly, I think it, I think it really does capture something that yes, that old system is gone. And even, but even 30 years on, there are still shards that are stuck in the body politic, uh, after the result of the, the end of this system. 
Um, I thought that I really loved that that metaphor. So, mm -hmm. and the new trauma of the war is going to, yeah, is going to kind of morph morph that metaphor into a new, give it all the more meaning. Yes, yes, and it will be it will be interesting to see if will this be a chosen trauma, a chosen glory. Or will it be sublimated altogether? <laughs> but that I think that a lot of that depends on the the outcome of all of this. So, um, well, great. I think I think that gives listeners at least something to chew on on this very very dense interview uh, that I find immensely fascinating. It's definitely one of those I think one has to listen to maybe twice <laughs> to really to really benefit from it a lot of the ideas. So, well, I thank you as always, Margaret, for your for your thoughts on this. Um, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and uh, as you heard, I'm joined by M Margaret Budik, and the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. Um, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, if you find it informative, please let other people know, share it on social media, get your friends and family to listen. I certainly, I certainly try, but, you know... I know a lot of people are interested in Russia, so it's easy for me. Uh, <laughs> you can also drop us a line on Facebook and Twitter and at srbpodcast.org to let us know what you think. Um, we, we talk about, we actually, this past last week, we talked about one of the criticisms that we got, and hopefully we are, will improve over the time. Um, and also, um, if you'd like to support us financially, we, of course, are more than happy to receive your money and donations. Uh, because this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and it relies on the support of individuals to keep it completely free without, you know, paid advertisements to get in the way. So please help us keep it that way. Um, become a monthly patron by going to srbpodcast.org or the Patreon page, patreon.com slash blog, and become a patron. So until next time, bye. Yeah.